millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Celebrations now, come on. Why am I so happy? Why could I be so happy? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because my book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to buy. Hooray! Forget all that and pre-ordering. Forget all that. You can actually buy it. You can buy it all over the world through the wonders of the internet. You can pay in a wide range of currencies and all you have to do is go to our website which is livinghistorytv.com. Livinghistorytv.com. You know it makes sense. Buy today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to our exciting, oh, this is so exciting, this podcast. What's it about, Gary? Tell me what it's about. Why am I beside myself with excitement? Because I'm in the room, Pete. That is one reason, obviously, Gary. I and your multitude, your legion of fans. Well, Fred. Uh, that and the fact that uh, today we're going to be looking at the second Battle of Knightsbridge and the role of the South Knots Hussars, our continuing story of their adventures. And uh... oh, Have we done the South Knots Hussars before, Gary? Yeah, and I think, actually, that's a good point, Peter. I think we should have a recap. Who are the South Knots Hussars? Well, they are the 107 Regiment Royal Horse Artillery. They're territorial uh, regiment that were, that, that were from the Nottingham area. There's the 425 Battery, which are largely from uh, Nottingham itself. Uh, 426 Battery, which a lot of them were miners. Not, not young people, Gary. <laughs> they worked down coal mines. And then there was 520 Battery, which was a complete mixture of the two. And we've already discussed what happened to them, how they were mobilised, their training in England, how they went to Palestine, came to Egypt. We followed them through from Mersamatru, through into Tobruk. Uh, that they were in the Tobruk siege and now they've come out and we the last podcast was the Battle of Knightsbridge uh, which uh, the, the 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 attack on them on the 26th of May which uh, which destroyed B Troop of 520 battery and severely battered the rest we're going to we're going to pick up with that now 27th of May I don't say 26 I do tend to say 26th of May it's just a lovely date isn't it I don't know I weren't listening oh well <laughs> Now, where are we? Should we should we summarise where we've got to? Do you want to do it or should I? 
I think you should, seeing as you know. Yeah. Right now, well, where we are is Rommel's plan has been stymied a bit in several respects. Bir Hakim, which is at the north of the Allied line, had still not fallen. The Free French were holding out there. The sweep round them to the north had made good initial progress, but had been stemmed by a pretty determined resistance from the 1st Armoured Division. And Rommel had, by this time, uh, at the end of May, lost something like a third of his tanks. Um, the, the Panzers, were, were, they found that they were surprised by the hitting power of the, the Grant 75mm guns, which is a big step up for British tanks. And the, the, the stupid Crusaders with their two-pounder guns, they got used to desert warfare and they were firing a lot, hole down, hidden out of sight with just the, the, the gun poking over behind a sand dune or something. Uh, and that sort of partially compensated for their inadequate guns. Um, and to make matters worse, that, they, that, that Rommel's plans had included an assault to, to drive a direct supply line straight through uh, and through the, the sort of allied line. So while they hooked right, they also launched a, a punch through to create a, a supply line. This was to go past the Sidi Mufta box. And that hadn't succeeded either. So what Rommel does was he orders his panzers to fall back into the cauldron area, which is uh, between the Knightsbridge box and the Sidi Mufta box. Uh, and he would uh, basically he'd face east and, and, and use the British minefield to defend his rear, so to speak. Any comments so far? No, I think it's just vitally important to defend your rear. Very much so. Now, Rommel's tanks are beginning to suffer by this time. They're, they are, they're short of petrol, they're short of ammunition, they're short of uh, food and water. They, they couldn't carry on like this. And in desperation, Rommel earns them to turn, uh, the, the, uh, turn and to push to the west. Uh, this is to try and smash a, a supply route past the 150th Brigade box, attacking them from both sides at once. And his gamble works because the 150 box falls. It's crushed. Uh, overwhelming forces, mass Stuka attacks, and the box finally is overrun on the afternoon of the 1st of June. So this frees up this much-needed direct supply route, and, and suddenly the situation's changed, Gary. It really has, my little gazer muffin, as somebody calls you. Can Lovely. I just check? You, you mentioned they were subject to Stuka attacks. What was the Desert Air Force doing at this time? I don't know. That's, I'm really glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> not being there in sufficient numbers. You just uh, exposed one of my many gaps in my nose. But I'll tell you what, we'll take from this. We're not experts on this subject, are we? Uh, this is just something that we're talking about. I did tell you yesterday I was going to ask that. Oh, well, <laughs> oh, I didn't do it. So not only are we not experts, we're all prepared. Uh, so uh, everything's changed. Now, Rommel's uh, armoured divisions are now fully resupplied and they're in a central position and they, 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 they've got the chance to thrust right in the heart of the 8th Army defensive lines. Now, this is not appreciated by the British High Command. Uh, Auchinleck, he's he's frightened of losing the initiative he, he wants to either attack directly by the 13th corps or a wide sweeping counter-attack around rommel's southern flank you may be a left hook to go with rommel's right hook they're, they're always doing this circling around to the uh, to the south uh, but both of these plans are, are <laughs> pie in the sky to be honest um and, and the, in the end, they go along with uh, General Ritchie's plan, which is to launch a direct assault onto the German forces in the cauldron. This would uh, take place on the 5th of June, uh, but it's also a horrendous risk, and they haven't appreciated that the cauldron is now Rommel's strongest point. 
The problem is the High Command will not accept localised report, local reports of the strength of the German forces in the cauldron. And here's a quote that sort of proves, not proves it, but because it, it's oral history, that doesn't prove anything, gives an indication. And this is uh, Ted Whittaker, Lance Sergeant Ted Whittaker, who was on OP duty. And he's trying to tell the intelligence officers at headquarters what was really happening. Does it go well for him, Gary? We could see the big minefield and we were shooting at vehicles which were coming through from west to east. Instantly, we reported this because the only known path at that time was further towards Bir Hakim, where it was fairly narrow. We reported this. Back came someone from Brigade on our frequency who said, Regards your sit rep, suggest you mean east to west, enemy retreating. We were incensed at this and Birkin got on the mic himself and said, Troop movements west to east through minefield. Blow me, they came back again and said, other reports definitely indicate east to west, enemy retreating. This was one of the fatal mistakes. They'd opened a huge gap through the minefield and were pouring supplies through. Now, as a result of this inability to realise what was going on, the plans were made for Operation Aberdeen. It's going to be carried out on the night of the 4th, 5th of June. After a big artillery barrage, of which South Notzazars would be part, the 10th Infantry Brigade, who were part of the 5th Indian Division, and the 22nd Armoured Brigade, which is the parent body of the South Notzazars, were were to thrust westwards directly into the cauldron, breaking through their minefields and anti-tank gun defences to take Aslag Ridge, and then push Push on to the Sidi Mufta depression, known as Cauldron. That's what the Cauldron was called uh, uh, at the time. Uh, ready for the 32nd Army Brigade, they would attack from the north, looking to capture the Sidra Ridge that also overlooked the Cauldron. And finally, the 7th Army Division with the 9th Indian Brigade were to d- destroy whatever forces remained, because they're completely underestimating what forces would be there. Uh, so that's what's going to happen. Uh, on the 5th of June 1942, the 107th RHA, uh, they're attached, as we said, to the 10th Indian Brigade. They're taking part in this planned heavy barrage, uh, which would start at 03.30 in the morning. Ray Ellis, he's only 22 years old at this time. Uh, he's a sergeant by now at 22. Uh, that's a substantially quicker promotion than you ever got. And he's a bit of a man old before his time, isn't he? What, tell us what he's feeling, Gary. I was tired, physically tired, tired of battles, fighting, deserts and killing, sick of the whole thing. I was only 22, but as far as warfare went, I was an old man. Now, he says another battle, another barrage, there's always the prospects of deaths, and he goes on to say, the worst part of a battle is before the battle, that's when you have the fear. My gun crew were new, and this was their first experience of warfare. I felt sorry for them because they were all obviously frightened. They were also homesick. It was only a matter of months since they'd been at home in England with their wives and sweethearts. I felt sorry for these men who were homesick, frightened and cold. Then you got the, take post! You get on the gun, just tensing yourself. Everything is very still and quiet. Then the shout through the megaphone. Zero, minus five, four, three, two, one... Fire! A screaming crash as every gun along the front opens up and the battle is started. There is no longer then time to think about being wounded or killed or lonely or tired. You're involved. The gun is firing and leaping about and you're firing the programme. 
and it's a big program. They fire something like 135 rounds a gun, and then they're going to move forward, as we said, with the 10th Indian Brigade and secure the the Aslag Ridge. Uh, which and then they thought they'd see ahead of them Rommel's defeated or soon to be defeated forces in the Cauldron area. They didn't know what was coming to them, did they? Uh, the Germans had already they'd fallen back slightly, and most of the barrage fell on empty desert. So all those shells do nothing. Uh, now it's time, though, for the German retaliation. And again, we have a report from Lance Sergeant Ted Whitaker. What happens, Gary? In the distance, there was this big arc of little tongues of fire. I realised to my horror that this was practically the whole of the Africa Corps, Africa Corps waiting for us. Soon after the first flashes, everything fell on us. The fire was absolutely murder. We were on this downslope and they were sitting at the edge of this shallow bowl. Absolute chaos. That really was the beginning of the end. So all the Grant, Stuart and Crusader tanks, the 22nd Armoured Brigade, they're being shot to bits in that terrible barrage. That day they'd lose uh, something like 60 of its... 156 tanks. Uh, the attack from the north by 32nd Tank Brigade, it couldn't get through. It ran into a minefield and then was hit by the 21st Panzer Division. They lost 50 of her 70 tanks. No, no help coming from there, Gary. No help at all. The 9th and 10th India Brigade and their supporting gunners, that's including the 107th, uh, the South Nazareth, they're in a terrible situation. They're facing most of the 15th Panzer Division and the Ariete Armoured Division. A, a really good Italian thing. They're in the cauldron and they've got no proper armoured support. And to make things worse, that night, 5th of 6th of June, what few tanks that, that remained are withdrawn. Now, this is, I've been doing a lot about the 5 and 4 4 This is going off to Lager. Tanks always pull back for. To, to get ammunition, to get fuel. It's not bad, but it's just what happened. So they're withdrawn to the northeast. And in, the, in, in their absence, the Germans creep forward. And this is, uh, this is uh, one of our favourites. He's always been a favourite. Uh, Captain uh, William Pringle, uh, 425 Battery. I went and saw her. <laughs> I'm not doing it in my... Why, why do I always do it as a Cornish friend? I can't do a Scottish accent. I went and saw Peter Birkin and played hell and said, if we don't get out of here tonight, we've had it. He agreed with me. And we both went to see the colonel. That's Colonel Seely. He said, we'd put it to the divisional command. I said, we've got to have more ammunition and a lot of it. He said, don't worry, Bill. Don't worry. There's plenty of ammunition on the way. I said, well, I hope he gets here before daylight. He's quite a bad-tempered bloke, Pringle. He said, why? And I said, the German tanks are round behind and they'll shoot it up. How do you know? I can hear them. You can't move tanks around without making horrible squawking of tracks and God knows what. I was annoyed, probably wrongly, <laughs> with his lack of ability to convince higher command that they'd got it wrong. There are, <laughs> there are different ways of putting things, but I'm afraid I should have sworn at him, <laughs> at them. It's one of the ways to make people listen to you. Now, this is something I much, very much agree with, and I believe you share these views, Gary. No, I'm often shocked by your language. Gasp. <laughs> uh, the second in command of the South Nazis is Major Bob Daniel, and he argues with the 22nd Armoured Brigade commander, Brigadier William Carr. He puts the case for a retirement from a suicidal position. It's his belief they should pull back towards Knightsbridge Escarpment. Uh, massed by a mass of smoke shells and hoping to dissuade the tanks from following them. Uh, he was met with short shrift and the way Bill Carr speaks to him really does affect the battle to come because it affects uh, 
Daniel's mood. I can't help but do Daniel. I met Daniel. I'm going to have to do him as uh, Blood Knock, so here we go. <laughs> he, he said, Bob, here to stand and fight in the position where you are now. You're not to move. Do you understand me? You're not to move at all. I told him if I obeyed, I would lose every single man I had. He replied, you are a horse artillery officer. You have been properly brought up and you know that in battle you will obey orders or take the consequences. Now, to be fair, his suggestion isn't the wrong one to to pull back. You know, he's recognised the difficulty that they're in. And this is the point about Daniel. Daniel is correct. It's what happens later that makes him unpopular in his regiment. Uh, well, it's not his regiment. He's, uh, he's been parachuted in. Uh, uh, but he's entirely right in what he says there. Uh, now, not many of the South Nutsers are. Do you think you'd sleep well in the desert with nothing around you? And you can hear squeaking and clanking of tyres. Think you'd sleep well, Gary? I'd be all right if Chris Carlin was there. Well, Chris Carlin has always tucked you in bed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, there they are in a sort. Of, where are they? Well, the D troop, that's the last bit of 520 battery. They're on the left, 425 battery in the middle, and both of them are facing south, if you can picture it. And then to their right is 426 battery, and that's, uh, that's facing, uh, well, it's facing uh, uh, west. <laughs> oh, I'm so good at north and south. Uh, they're in a saucer-like depression, and the, there's a raised rim all the way round them. That doesn't sound good. No. And that all the way round them, there's a rim. So they can't see can't what's see going it. on. Mm. Uh, and this allows... What do you think that allows the Germans to do, Gary? Well, I would imagine that they can come as close as they like. Until they get across that rim, they're not visible. That's it. Uh, and it, it's just... It's, it's hopeless. Uh, also there, and I want to mention them, but we're not going to mention them seriously because that's not what this is about. This is about the South Nazis. But what, let's have a roll call of the other units who were, well, massacred in here. 4th, 10th Baluka Regiment, 2nd, 4th Gurkha Rifles, the 3rd, 9th Jat Regiment, the 4th, 28th and 157th Field Ar- Royal Artillery. And uh, that, that's the Divisional Artillery of 5th Indian Division. But we're going to concentrate, as ever, on the South Nazis. But let's not forget, they're not the only ones suffering here. Now, the men knew their positions untenable. Uh, they wouldn't have been human if they hadn't. And this is Bombardier Albert Parker. He was a lovely bloke. We, we heard him laughing about being unconsciously drunk yes. just the last podcast. Well, now he's got something else to worry about. He says this. Then you knew that was it. I felt shattered. How does a young man feel when he thinks his life's going to finish there and then? You'd made a picture in your mind of Germans. It was a big figure, about nine feet tall, strong, swarthy, invincible. So a bit like uh, Dan Snow. Well, he's not swarthy. (laughs) If he was nine foot tall, strong, and and gorgeous, it would be Dan Snow, wouldn't it? He's a good bloke, Dan Snow. Anyway, Ray Ellis wasn't very reassured by what his experience is that night. We love Ray, don't we? And, and, and he has a chat with a couple of officers as they go around. And they're, they're not going to sugarcoat it, are they? So tell us what Ray Ellis says. about them. I was standing by the gun when two figures approached. Captain Slynn and Lieutenant Geoffrey Timms. They stopped for a chat and I asked, What's the situation, sir? Captain Slynn said, We're being left to fight a rear guard, sergeant. We're going to stop, and it's one of those fights to the last man and last round jobs. 
It's going to be a bloody awful day. A real hell of a job, this one. I think there will be very few of us left alive at the end of this day. And Graham Slynn, watch out for that name. I, I know this is terrible, but I'm setting it up. Just watch out for that name and see what happens to the poor lad. Just a young boy as well. A young boy to us anyway, isn't he? Now, the light starts to improve. And Ted Whittaker, he's thinking, oh, the British tanks will be back. They'll save us. Uh, he was to be disappointed. Lance Sergeant Ted Whittaker. During the night, they told us not to be alarmed. The British tanks were going out to refuel and rearm. On 6th of June, we stood to from before first light. As it got light, we looked up the ridge and yes, there were the tanks in position. Hooray! You could just see the tops of them silhouetted. Hooray! As it got just a bit lighter, then we knew we were for it. They were German tanks, hold oh. down. Oh dear. Uh, at, at about dawn, some Stukas flew across uh, their whole area and the, the German recognition signals, their purple smoke, and it was all around them. They know what's going to happen. Uh, the first attack comes at 0830, a mass tank attack. Very unsubtle, just pushing in from the southwest, but aimed squarely at 425 battery. And this is Gunnar Ronald Miles. I was given this account by, by his uh, grandson, I think it was, and I, uh, 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 and I put it in the book. It came very late, but I just got it in the book. And he says this, Ronald Miles, uh, the colonel's armoured car was seen travelling at high speed in our direction. The car turned parallel to the guns and the colonel, almost hanging out of the vehicle, was yelling, Tank alert! Independent gunfire! Zero elevation! That meant each gun for itself. I said a prayer or two as I scrambled onto the seat. I swung my scope to front vision and saw four or five tanks moving towards us at about 800 yards. I slapped my backside, which indicated to John Whitford Walker that I was on target. He yelled, I'm a piercing, oh, AP, he'd say, AP up the spout. As soon as he, I heard the breach slam to, I heard John yell, fire. I fired. I watched as the blue light at the rear of the shell moved to the second tank in line. A bullseye! Smoke and flames shot out the turret of the tank. I moved my scope onto the next moving target and achieved the same result. The tanks were now closing in and stopped at about 500 yards. Simultaneously, they did a 90-degree turn and moved to my left. I saw one tank turn its turret back onto me and then a flash! The tank shell hit the left side of my gun shield and ripped a huge chunk of flesh from my left thigh. John pulled me from the seat and yelled for Frank Bush to take over. As John moved me to the rear of the gun, I felt something hit me in the throat. I knew no more. And for me, this is weird because I knew John Walker. I knew him really well. I not just interviewed him, but he set the whole interview project up with the Imperial War Museum. Now, they only got to about 500 to 700 yards. And then Rayalis, uh, who is also 425 battery, says this. Uh, tell us what Ray said, uh, Gary. To be honest, all you're looking at are the few tanks that are coming near your gun. All you're thinking about is knocking out any tanks that look dangerous to you, not saving the British Empire. Well, yeah, you can understand it. That's, that's of course, people aren't thinking about the British Empire. It's, it's them. At about 9.30, Bill Seely sends a message, a wireless message to Brigadier Carr, again asking permission to retire. But Carr's intransigent. He informs Seely that a relief force, the 32nd Army Tank Brigade, and under the command of Brigadier Arthur Willison, was on the way to rescue him. It's just rubbish. Willison's tanks couldn't make any headway against the German fire. Now, the, 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 the Germans have been rebuffed in that first sort of straight-on attack. So they, 
What do the Germans do? Well, they adapt their tactics. They move up behind the ridge. They move their infantry. They move up their artillery. And they start to fire airburst shells all over the South Knots Hussars position. And artillery positions that are not properly dug in, they're vulnerable to airbursts. Airbursts is like shrapnel shells. It bursts in the air and scatters things in front of it. Um, now, let's talk about the medical facilities. They're, they're totally inadequate. The newly arrived Dr. McFarland, this is a different uh, doctor from the ones we talked about earlier in the thing. And he, his orderly was still, though, the orderly's still good old Harry Dame. Uh, and uh, they set up a regimental aid post in a slight depression around their three-ton covered lorry. And uh, how, many, how many stretchers do you think they had for the uh, three batteries? Ooh, 20, 30? Four. Well... The ground was soon covered with wounded. It's just nowhere near. And, and there was one particularly horrible case. And this, you know, sometimes we want, to, we want to make, we want to have a laugh. We want to enjoy these podcasts. But sometimes it's just too horrible. And this is Harry Day. Medical orderly Harry Day. One of the wounded had a compound fracture of the humerus. The doctor was replacing the splint. And I was supporting the hum- humerus with the man's head resting on my thigh as I was kneeling on the floor of the truck. An 88mm armour-piercing shell came straight through the truck and hit him under the throat, taking the man's head completely off. His remains were spattered on the canvas of the truck. I rolled over with the near miss and my shorts were covered with his blood. At first I thought I'd been wounded myself, thought my cricketing and sporting activities had finished. Putting my hands down my shorts, I found I was still in one piece. Now, normally we'd make a joke of that, wouldn't we? But it, this isn't laughing matter, is it? Uh, that, that poor sod who had his head ripped off. And, and poor old Harry. And what that must have done to Harry Day to have it. I mean, I can't imagine it. These airbursts, the, the wounded pour in through the day. The airbursts are what's doing the damage. Uh, and one explodes uh, near the, uh, the Frank Knowles, Lance Bombardier, Frank Knowles, 425 battery. And he says this, and uh, remember that name, Graham Slynn, we're watching for? Well, this is what happens to him. And uh, and uh, Lieutenant Timms as well, the other one that, that uh, Ray Ellis was talking to. Looking out of the rear of my truck, I saw a shell airburst fell Captain Slynn and Lieutenant Timms. They had severe head wounds. That was within 12 foot of the rear of my vehicle. And I got out to see if I could do anything. But Peter Birkin told me to get back in and leave it to the medical officer and his elderly. Now, Harry Day is called to the scene by a runner, but it's really dangerous. And, and, and they managed to get to them. And this is what uh, medical orderly, uh, what Harry Day says. It, it's awful. Again, it's another horrible quote. Captain Slynn and Lieutenant Timms were both taken by stretcher back to the regimental aid post. Their wounds were, I can't elaborate, they were beyond talking about. They were beyond the possibility of medical treatment. The actual decision about giving these men a lethal dose of morphine by hypodermic syringe rested entirely with the doctor, who was completely justified. They would never have been normal human beings again. I saw that it was a relief for them. Because it was actually Harry Day who had to do it. And uh, uh, Graham Slynn and Geoffrey Timms, I, I feel so sorry for those young lads. It's good to remember them uh, to this day. Uh, by this time, well, how many stretches did we say there were? Four. There's uh, 70 badly wounded men at the regimental aid post. And at the gun positions, the battle's getting really desperate. Uh, this is uh, Sergeant Ray Ellis. He says this. The air was just alive with red-hot steel. I remember hitting a Mark IV tank and it slewed round and burst into flames. 
The next thing, I was in the air, as if someone had picked me up and thrown me up in the air, spinning in the air. We'd had a direct hit on the gun. I dropped, whoom, onto the ground. I lay there a second or two, dazed, and then, before I picked myself up, I went up spinning in the air again and dropped again. This time, I think I was unconscious for a short time. Now, they think this was an 88-gun, millimetre gun, uh, had dropped a couple of shells near the gun pit. And uh, poor old Ellis, he's, he's completely dazed and he, he's, he's, he's scrambled senses. And when he wakes up or comes round, is a better expression, it's just horrible. It's just, just horrible what he sees. My gun was upside down and the crew were draped on the floor all around. I thought I must be wounded, but I couldn't feel anything. My shirt and body were all black. My clothes were all bloodstained and I was in a hell of a state. I realised that I was the only one to have survived. The whole crew had been killed. My next thought was for self-preservation, a very strong instinct. Get your head down, Ray. And that, there's two interesting things there, I think. Uh, uh, that's his mates that have been killed from the gun through. And the second, the, the, the second great instinct of a soldier, uh, if you can't fight, uh, get your head down, because there's no point in being stupid. He gets a, a small hole in the ground, sort of scrabbles away, making, a, making it, trying to make it bigger. Any cover to get out of the way of those shells. Then he sees a shell burst at the number one gun section, which is close by, the, the neighbouring gun. And again, he doesn't want to... <laughs> But his duty calls. Go on, what was he say? With a great deal of reluctance, I got out of my hole and went over to number one gun. The gun was in a parlous state. The shield was all riddled. At least one of the tyres was flat, but it was workable. Other people must have noticed, because from somewhere men started to appear. They were signallers or specialists or drivers, but they helped to man the gun. These men were not gunners, but you could tell them what to do. Now, they're still under heavy fire. The German tanks are starting to attack again. They're getting closer. And it's like one of those awful deaths all around. But Ellis seems to have had a bit of a charmed life. He does seem to have been incredibly lucky. Sergeant Ray Ellis goes on to say, As one man was mown down, then somebody else appeared. I remember a man from the Royal Corps of Signals coming onto the gun position in the late afternoon. This man caught a burst of machine gun fire right in the bottom part of his body. He jumped in the air, an instinctive muscle movement, then fell to the ground. I looked at this lad and he was frightened. His eyes were terrified. I crouched down to try to console him with all the noise going on around. You're all right, lad. You're all right. Don't worry, you're not badly wounded. We'll soon have you away. I reckon you've got a blighty. Trying to ease his fear. While I was talking... I noticed the sand was settling on his eyes. He was dead. He died in my arms. I remember Ellis telling me that story, and, and he was very upset. He wasn't crying. That's not the sort of man Ray Ellis was, but he was clearly emotional. By 1800, the, the situation's gone beyond desperate. Uh, his, uh, Ray Ellis's gun's in a terrible state. It's been hit, but, you know, it's still working, but they're starting now to run out of ammunition. Remember, uh, uh, Pringle had been worried about ammunition, but he still fights on. On he goes. So this is Ray Ellis again. I was left with just one man on the gun. Everyone else had been killed. He was a complete stranger. I don't know who he was or where he'd come from. I'd just fired a shell when I heard a machine gun, which sounded as if it was a few inches behind me. It sounded so close. This man was just splattered against the inside of the gun shield. 
I looked behind and I could see the tank within 20 to 30 yards behind me with a machine gun still smoking. I tensed myself and waited for this burst of fire, which never came. I shall never know whether the gunner had compassion, ran out of ammunition or saw something that distracted him. I like to think he had compassion. Hmm. It's, it's an amazing quote. Imagine bracing you. You know what's coming. Um, now, Colonel Bill Seeley, he's been going around. Everybody's got a lot of time for Colonel Bill Seeley, William Seeley to us, I suppose. But uh, he's been going around in his honey. That's that uh, uh, sort of an armoured car with a turret off. Um, checking with his troop and battery commanders, visiting the men in the gun pits. And he, he nearly made it to the end of the battle, but a shell hit his honey and killed him. And uh, he was killed. Well, sorry, yeah, he was killed. And it, it's terrible. Um, um, uh, there's a whole story uh, which is in my book, At Close Range, which I don't actually like advertising in a podcast like this. So I'm um, sorry I mentioned that now. Um, uh, now, in the closing stages, the gun's almost completely surrounded. Uh, and the, 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 the tanks, the panzers, are now edging forward. And they're basically using their machine guns. They're not using their main armaments anymore. They're so close. And guess who is determined not to surrender? Well, Major Bob Daniel, I would imagine, given his reaction to, to his instructions earlier. And what had happened is Brigadier Carr had really upset him. It, he was aroused and not in a good way. And his natural pride, and he had plenty of that, had been kicked off, kicked into overdrive. And this is what Robert Daniel said to me. We, we were told to stand and fight to the last man and the, and the last round, and that's what we did. I was directly given the order, and I had no idea of surrender at all. My natural inclination had been to move the whole bloody lot half a day earlier and get them out of trouble. I never would order anybody to surrender, and no horse artillery gunner officer has ever surrendered. Um, now... But the trouble is, what he did... To, I don't think he's done anything wrong so far. And you don't either, do no, you? No, no, not at this stage. What he does next, though, is... And this is why he was loathed by the survivors of this battle. Um, at first, when you listen to what he says, and I'll tell you what he says now, it seems almost reasonable. Daniel says this, Robert Daniel. I knew that guns behind me had no ammunition. I knew that Barber's ammunition had got... Batter, Barber's battery had got ammunition. He, he made a mistake there. I've just repeated the mistake he made. If I could get guns to it, if I could get the four guns together, I could face four ways. Four ways. I could therefore stop any tank from running over them. You must remember, I'd seen a German tank run right over a British gun. I found these two guns and shouted at them to follow me. I was in my 800-weight truck and I started to drive off towards Barber's position. I never saw them again. Now, this is the problem. He's he, he's running up, shouting people to form square, which is what he's basically doing with these four guns. And this is Ted Whitaker. And this next account is harrowing. And you're very brave to read it. There was ammunition exploding, gun limbers and ammunition trucks blowing up, flames, smoke, horrible stink of gunpowder. I went up to E-Troop. I thought, if this was it, I might as well be with my mates. Major Daniel drove up and shouted, Form British Square! Go and form up on 426 Battery! They were over to our right. I rushed up when I heard this, and the gunners, they'd got quads, which were still in action, 
and they hooked the guns in. I went to get on the limber of the first gun in the troop. There were two or three chaps sitting on the limber. The nearest one, Harrison, was a Derby County footballer. They told me to F off. That's a rare bit of (laughs) humour. The truck was moving and I grabbed hold of the door and put one foot in the footrest. So I was hanging on the side of the door. We went a few yards and there was the most horrible... I glanced round. Couldn't quite see what had happened. There were some awful moans at the back. The most enormous crash brought us to a standstill. As I jumped off, I looked back and it was a terrible sight. The first shell had hit these blokes. This poor Harrison was practically in half. I dropped off the door and threw myself flat. The driver, Stevenson, he got half out the door and the next armour-piercing shell came straight through the driving cab and there was poor Stevenson left hanging over the door. I was absolutely horrified at what had happened to these people I had been talking to only a few moments before. I felt I could have sat down and cried. That was, um, We looked up these people and uh, I tried to include where, where they're buried and things. Now, Daniel's gesture is utterly futile. This is not some heroic last stand, if you see what I mean. This is foolishness. The, the, the tanks are actually on the gun positions with machine guns. Tanks have machine guns. Um, and what's worse is Daniel, the men perceived that he had not stayed with them. Uh, he, he gave the order, Oh, British square. That's changed accent. See, that's the tension in his voice. Yeah. Uh, and then he drove off towards 426 Battery. Now, Bill Pringle is a much more pragmatic officer. And and, and, and he said, right, we're, we're being overrun. I'll spike the guns so the enemy can't use them. And this is what he said. The tanks were nearly on top of me. They were so close behind me. There was no more left to fire. We left the last two rounds to blow the guns up. You put one down the end and one up the other and pulled the trigger. And so with the Germans, they're actually on the gun positions, moving around. Uh, For those left alive, surrender is the only realistic proposition. Now, Ray Ellis, I think, is in a state of shock. Would you agree? Uh, Well, if he isn't, there's something strange about him. The The guns have now fallen silent, and Ray Ellis says this. I was very, very thirsty, and I walked over to Peter Birkin's armoured vehicle. In it were the bodies of the driver and Jim Hardy. He'd been cut in two but his water bottle was sort of hanging there. I got my knife, cut his webbing, took the water bottle and drank this lukewarm water from old Jim's bottle. I looked down at his lifeless face and I just burst into tears. Reaction, I suppose, seeing an old pal from the day I joined the regiment. Now, that Jim Hardy, see, it's just a name, but actually Jim Hardy was the the bloke who'd been... All those funny quotes that we had during the the conditions at at, uh, Tobruk, all those funny quotes about the the, the various jokes and games that were playing, and and now there he is, just cut in two. Um, He still had a drink from his water bottle because he's a practical soldier. Um... Uh, right, Fred Longford, he remembered that, that it, it all goes quiet. Uh, and uh, it's been tremendously noisy and then it's quiet. And he says this, Fred Langford, uh, he was the headquarters 425 battery. He said, when things became completely silent, you could hardly hear yourself speak because of the silence. The Jerrys came out and told us to gather together in a little group. The standard r- remark was, hard luck, England, for you, the fire is over. Hello, hello, apparently is their, uh, their, their reference point. In a guttural tone, of course. 
The thing that hurt my ego was they wanted the acorn cap badge. I took my cap badge off. That's how I lost my cap badge. One chap was shot just like that because he virtually told the Germans demanding it to get stuffed. I'm afraid I'm no hero to that act. There was an officer called Chad Bird who was shot defined and, and then another one you can't argue with the with the if you're being taken prisoner if you ask about and argue they just shoot you now whatever you think of major robert daniel and he's he really was a man of his word and he was not going to surrender what happens is amazing he sort of his driver tells him to get lost uh, and he gets in his um, his little truck and he just drives off. He manages to evade the tanks and just drives off into the desert. And he has many adventures. Now, I have to say, I, I, I've analysed what Daniel says. And a lot of the time he is not telling the truth about things. But the, the fact remains, he does make it through and he gets back to the, the base area. Uh, he does make it. Uh, and will he feature in, in the future in any of the podcasts? Oh, no. He was only with them for a year, basically. And uh, he... He was never invited to the uh, regimental reunions. They they did loathe him. I, I, I found him an interesting man. And he clearly survived the war. He survived, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, he survived the war. Um, but the, the, the South Knots never forgave him. And he did imp- imply in reports, verbal reports, he made some people I interviewed that they hadn't fought hard and they'd been overrun. And they don't like him. Uh, but then I want to just make a point that men at war can have real, because um, it's so stressful that things can really get out of hand. The strength of feeling is magnified by the situation that they're in. That's it. Thank you, Gary. You're so explainery. <laughs> Eloquent. <laughs> Eloquent, yeah. Now, uh, Rayalist was one of those to surrender. And, and this is the final bit, really. Uh, what happens to Ray? A German Mark IV tank rolled up and there was a German with his head poking out the top. He just beckoned me up onto the tank. I jumped up and I could see he was a sergeant. We looked at one another. We'd been fighting each other all day. And we both shrugged our shoulders and looked up to heaven. What a bloody silly thing it was. It was a matter of two enemies who had no enmity. Now, I'm always slightly dubious about perfect stories, but Ray Ellis seems to normally be on that. And I find that a great story. And it does make a lovely point that, that I think whole has has a real validity uh, now for them the what it's as the german said for your the war is over well it really was over for most of them uh, the regimental history re- estimates that during the 10 days of the battle of knightsbridge because that's from the 27th of may through to the 6th of june uh they the, the 76 south Hussars were killed uh 16 more died from their wounds or when they were pow's and many of the rest of the 500 men of the South Hussars were now prisoners, most of them. The ones who weren't were either in the B echelons or, 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 or back. Uh, one of my favourites was, you, you've done him off now, Albert Swinton, and he'd been set, sent to get the beer supply from Cairo. So he rolled up back and with a beer truck to, uh, to the B echelon, and, and every man was given a couple of bottles of beer. That's just, just to bring a smile to these closing phases. And what has been a grim, very grim episode uh, but for all intents and purposes uh, 107 regiment uh, royal horse artillery the south of Tazars, uh, had ceased to exist and i think this has been a it's a short episode but i think it's been a very powerful episode of men at war when things go wrong i don't know how you feel gary 
I think it's I think it's a very moving episode today, Pete. I think you've done uh, the South Knots and Isles justice today. I think uh, you've uh, relayed their experiences magnificently well, and sometimes you just have to listen. Thank you. Cheers, Gary. Cheers. Cheers, Pete. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?